This is an ABC podcast. Sometimes, particularly where technology is concerned, it can be difficult to gauge the difference between spin, wishful thinking and reality. Various forms of technology capture the public imagination to such an extent that they end up becoming part of our ongoing public discourse, even when they repeatedly fail to meet expectations. Let me give you an example. I read a mainstream media article recently that listed the driverless car among the great and most influential achievements of the modern world. And online, that sort of hype is everywhere. Imagine a world where you wake up, grab your cup of coffee, and hop in your car to drive to work, except you're not doing the driving. You have more time to sleep, read a book, or even get a physical. Now, I don't know about where you live, but there are no fully autonomous vehicles on the streets of my city. Not one that I know of. Despite almost two decades of hype, the concept of the driverless car remains largely that, a concept. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Today on the program, we want to correct some of the misconceptions we have around car travel and the future. Not to suggest that finding alternatives to the internal combustion engine or to our current travel practices isn't worthwhile, but to reset our understanding of how transport is actually changing. Let's start with electric vehicles. You could be forgiven for thinking that electric cars are slowly but surely taking over the world, particularly as tackling climate change has become such an imperative, and with so many car manufacturers proudly promoting their embrace of the technology. Well, the good news is that the sales are definitely on the rise. But you might be surprised to hear how many of the 90 million or so cars produced and offered for sale each year are in fact battery-powered. Go on, take a guess. Around 20%, you think? Surely not less than that. Maybe even 30%. Too high? Too low? Here's science and environment reporter Nick Kilvert. So worldwide new car sales, electric cars, are at about 2.5% of new cars that are sold every year. A big part of that is being driven up by China. China's a a huge market. About 50% of the global electric car sales are happening just in China, and nearly 5% of their new cars are electric cars. So that kind of skews the the figures a bit, but even in Europe, the European Union, it's about 3.5% of new cars are electric. But in Australia, it's we're down at about 0.6%. So if you look at it from a trend perspective in Australia, we're still fairly low. So I think last year we bought about 6,000 electric cars in Australia. This year it's expected to be a bit higher than 6,000, but the trend hasn't continued rising as steeply because of, of the COVID downturn. But if you go back year on year, so... 2018 in Australia, there was only 2,000, a bit over 2,000 electric cars sold. And if you go back a few years before that, it was only a couple of hundred. So if you take China out of the equation, the numbers are really low. And that's despite the fact that the European Union and countries like the United Kingdom are actually now starting to put targets in place for the switchover from internal combustion to electric. 
I guess the difficulty with rolling out electric cars like this, and I think what those countries are really, you know, countries like the UK are really going to face with those tight deadlines on becoming completely electric is you need the infrastructure there as well. So you need to have a lot of charging stations and you also need your grid to be able to deal with the kind of change in demand on it as well. Right now, it's fair to say that, that relative to petrol cars, they're still a really small market. They're certainly going to increase really steeply in the next few years, but putting those hard targets on it like the UK have done, I think they're going to face a few challenges as well. And where do hybrid cars fit in in all of this? Yeah, hybrid cars in Australia have been a lot more popular because you've still got a petrol engine backing it up, so you don't get that range anxiety. You can still go to a petrol station and, and basically the, the electric motor just kicks in to kind of lower your fuel costs. So I guess you can kind of see them as a bit of a like a transition technology, but they're not really going to be the future. I think we'll see those kind of slowly phase out as, as the battery car range gets longer and, and more reliable. The big question, I guess, with electric cars is how green they are. There is a perception, I guess, that an electric car doesn't contribute to the burning of fossil fuels, but that's not necessarily the case, is it? No, that's that's not the case. Certainly not the case anywhere in Australia because, of course, you've got to charge it and you charge it from the grid. And in Australia, all of our grids you know, rely on some sort of burning of fossil fuels. How green an electric car is compared to a petrol car, it depends on how green the grid is you're charging it. So it's going to be, if you have an electric car in Tasmania, for instance, it's going to be a lot greener than if you have an electric car in Victoria where it's you're charging it on a lot more coal. It also comes down to the time of day that you're charging the car. So if you're, if you're charging it, say, in Victoria or South Australia during the middle of the day when you've got a lot of solar, a lot of solar energy feeding the grid, that's going to be a lot greener than if you're charging it at night, for instance, where you're charging it on coal. You can potentially, I guess, there's, there's technologies available now. So if you've got solar power on your house, you can use the power your panels are generating. That goes to your, all your household needs first, and then any excess can go into your car. So you're not taking away from what your house needs, but then you're getting all of that, the rest of that clean energy going to your car. So that is an option for a clean way to charge your car. However, electric cars... They have huge batteries. They need a lot of energy to charge those batteries, more than any household solar system array can provide. So you're still going to need supplementary power, supplementary charging from the grid, and that usually means some element of dirty fuel. In a country like Australia, could you actually power all the cars if you wanted to, all the cars that are used today, from the grid, regardless of whether it's, it's fossil fuel or whether it's renewable? I mean, do we have the electricity capacity to actually do that? My understanding at this point is no. So down in South Australia, one electric vehicle charging station, they estimate that that's the equivalent of adding about 100 households, new households to the grid. And that's only for a fairly small number of electric cars. So right now, only 0.6% only of our new car sales each year are electric cars. So the actual number of new cars alone that we're buying is over 100,000 every year. Charging those, all of those from the grid, as far as I know, we don't have the capacity right now to be charging all of those. So that's a substantial issue even before you get to whether the grid is based on renewable energy sources or not. That's a huge issue and it's, it's something that's going to have to be overcome. There's a really interesting thing that it's 
so it's not available right now, but it's in development, it's it's in process, and it is available in, in countries like the United States where it's called vehicle-to-grid charging technology. So basically what we have there is, is you can essentially plug your car into your household, use it to run your household appliances during peak times, and then obviously you know using it as your backup car battery when you're not doing that. So what we may be able to do, the big issue with electric cars because they they take a huge amount of charge so it's about 50 kilowatt hours for the average battery in an electric car if they're all plugged in at the same time during the day for instance that's going to put a huge load like a peak load on the grid that it may not be able to handle the idea would be with this kind of vehicle to grid technology is that we could actually kind of flatten the curve on the grid so people charging their cars at different times and then people actually plugging their car into the house and actually feeding back into the grid to take some of the load off the grid during some of those peak times as well. So there are things that can be done, but I think there's going to have to be a lot of juggling going on at the grid level to actually potentially down the future handle that kind of load. It's an interesting proposition that, isn't it? Because you could see that there would be an incentive then, a monetary incentive perhaps for people to take on an electric vehicle if they felt that uh, during downtime they could, down driving times, they could actually sell back to the grid. Yeah, absolutely. And especially if you're you're able to charge that off your home solar, for instance, or, or off a, a solar charge and then feed back into the grid, even if you're not feeding into the grid to make money, but if you're not having to use electricity to power your home during those peak times when electricity is the most expensive and instead you're drawing on your car battery. That's another cost-saving measure there. So it's, it's another good incentive, I guess. Now, building greater two-way connectivity between car and grid also underpins the development of what's being called the million-mile battery. In April, Elon Musk announced Teslas would soon be powered by a battery with a lifespan of more than one million miles. The current battery pack is about maybe 300 to 500,000 miles. Tesla isn't the only company interested in massively expanding battery life. So too is the Chinese firm Contemporary Amprex Technology and General Motors. Professor Shirley Meng from the University of California, San Diego. So throughout my entire academic career, I think uh, while we work a lot on mobile device and EV batteries, I think my ultimate dream is always to build this battery bank. You know, we call it the electron bank so that we can actually store large amount of electrons generated from wind and solar. Why million mile batteries is so important? Because I think it will fundamentally change people's mindset about battery is no longer an disposable. It's actually an asset. So if you think about, you know, when you buy something for your house, right, to store energy, most of the people, you know, want the hardware to last for decades. So I think this is the very first step when we will be ready to actually play a major, major role in terms of building electron banks to deploy large amount of solar and wind. And I think that kind of uh, major investment, you can imagine if you have to buy them, it will cost lots of money. So when you make that kind of investment, you want the batteries to last long and you want the batteries to you know, become an asset. It actually is something you can 
probably pass it on. So when we think about if the battery retire from the cars, right? First, is there a second use? Second, is that possible we can deploy recycling or reuse strategies so that the batteries can find its continuous life in the engineering devices. So I think those are the things that uh, a lot of the you know, younger generation scientists are very, very keen in answering those questions. I mean, our ultimate goal for the battery industry is really to enable what we call the circular economy for the entire battery supply chain because it takes humans a lot of energy to dig the chemicals, the elements out of the ground. And it will be really, I would say, silly (laughs) to dump the batteries in the landfill, kind of treat it as a disposable waste back to the landfill. I think that's really, really not smart thing to do. So our battery scientists, a lot of us are really thinking that if we have the million mile car, which means we will actually be really, really close to our ultimate dream that we will be able to build those battery electron banks for the renewable sources. Professor Shirley Meng from the University of California, San Diego. You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future. Reality check number two, the self-driving vehicle. Here's Dr. Ashley Nunes, a senior research fellow at Harvard Law School. If you go back five or seven years ago, almost every article you would read that was written by journalists at prominent media organizations were touting the virtues of driverless cars, rehashing the talking points of many of these autonomous vehicle companies, if you will. And most, if not all, uh, of the predictions they have made have turned out to be false. And there are a number of reasons why driverless cars have proven to be difficult to realize. But this particular issue has not been helped by this almost fantasy-like vision that journalists have created regarding what driverless cars will look like. Ouch. Present company excluded, of course. From his research, Dr. Nunes has identified three challenges that continue to hinder the development of self-driving cars. The first is power. The fact that driverless cars are extremely energy intensive to run. If you think about a vehicle today, if if you were to walk into a car dealership, in general, the vehicle would have on the order of between about 80 to 100 million lines of software code. Now, to put that into perspective, the space shuttle had about 400,000 lines of software code. Driverless cars are intended or envisioned to have upwards of 200 million lines of software code. And to process all that code, you need computers, very powerful computers. And the challenge here, of course, is equipping the vehicles with enough computing capacity to be able to churn through these gigabytes and gigabytes of data that are being produced. From an emissions perspective, of course, the challenge is that when you outfit uh, a vehicle with lots of computers, you simply make the vehicle heavier. And when you make the vehicle heavier, the fuel efficiency of the vehicle goes down. So even if you think about a modern day vehicle today, a difference in 
in weight between a high-end sort of van, if you will, and a low-end van in terms of its size, a difference of about, you know, about 450 kilograms, you know, between these two types of vehicles can usually mean uh, cost savings or cost increases in terms of fuel of somewhere in the order of about $5,000. So, you know, it's a bit of a strange one because on the one hand, you need to have the computers on board to churn through all this data. But the more computers you, you squeeze on board these vehicles, the more fuel inefficient you actually make the vehicle. And if we're talking about electric autonomous cars, there's also the weight of the battery to take into account, isn't it? If, I mean, if you move to a bigger battery, presumably that's going to mean more fuel consumption because of the, simply because of the weight. That's precisely the, the point, yes. And this is a, a challenge that airlines are currently having who have you know, espoused the virtues of going electric in the sky. If you outfit an airplane much like you do a car with an electric battery, you just make the airplane heavier. And when you make the airplane heavier, it becomes less fuel efficient. Now, cost is the second challenge that you identify, and we've talked about some of the costs involved there, but it occurs to me that leaving the car itself aside, there are also associated infrastructure costs, aren't there, with actually running a large number of autonomous cars in the city? You know, cost is an interesting factor. Uh, Cost has long been the factor that has largely been overlooked, both by proponents of the technology and by the media. We've done quite a few studies in this area in which we have found that if you're a consumer, the cost of hailing, if you will, a a robocab is not insignificant. Um, We had done some work in which we estimated these costs to be close to three times more than owning a vehicle today. So when you talk about infrastructure, absolutely, you know, making sure, for example, that the lines on the road are clear and they're painted and recognizable to the sensors on board the vehicle, that does matter. But it is also important to remember that you can have the best piece of technology, but that piece of technology is in a way worthless if people are unwilling to pay for it. Do we have any idea yet as to how expensive a standard, say, driverless car would be in the future, a driverless car that's designed for personal use? I think there is understandably a reluctance from automakers in this space to put a precise price tag on what the cost of personally owning a driverless car will look like. That said, the model that most automakers, the likes of BMW, Mercedes, for example, talk about is the so-called robocab model, where you give up your car and instead you use a driverless car much like you call an Uber. And over there, they have estimated that these costs could be you know, maybe two or three times cheaper than owning a regular car, but more and more there has been um, acceptance that the cost of this technology for consumers may be far pricier than what we've originally been told. Which brings us to your third challenge, which is pooling car sharing. And now we know that there's a lot of talk about autonomous cars being used for pooling. But the evidence from car sharing schemes in the past hasn't been all that good, has it? They, they haven't been overly successful to date. That is correct. You know, if you look even at uh, ride hailing companies, large ride hailing companies like Uber, for example, they have had very limited success with incentivizing riders to pool rides. 
On the other hand, ride pooling is arguably the single best thing we can do to reduce emissions on the road. And of course, we don't even need driverless cars for this. We could pool today. The challenge is that, as a general rule, people aren't terribly happy about pooling rides. There are a number of reasons why. You know, one is privacy, of course. But the larger issue, as it turns out, is that when you pool your ride with a separate rider, you don't know how much longer your ride is going to take. And the majority of consumers prioritize or value being somewhere as quickly as possible, which is why ride pooling has struggled since its infancy. Ashley Nunes from Harvard with the message that you're still going to have to keep your hands on the wheel for a long while yet. And on the subject of carpooling, the latest research out of Europe also isn't encouraging. Dr. Wolf Stoller is the author of a study titled The Demystification of Car Sharing. He's a partner with the global management consulting firm Carney. I mean, car sharing has really been high. On the European continent, so to say, there has been very, very high hopes with regard to car sharing for obvious reasons. On the one side, of course, perhaps the most important reason was the environmental movement and the hopes that were associated with car sharing, which theoretically could materialize in much less pollution, so to say, and much less car ownership and much less car density, especially in urban areas. And that has been touted to be the next big thing, replacing, partially replacing car ownership. And it has also been promoted as the better way, the more sustainable way of mobility. And to certain degrees, this hype cycle and this hype around car sharing is still in place in different parts of the world. But what I also see, and this is now the case probably for the better part of the last 12 to 18 months, that there is a sobering, a readjustment with how car sharing is being perceived from a number of perspectives, from the environmental perspective, to what degree it can actually replace car ownership, but also from the economical perspective. Now, you and your colleagues surveyed car sharing members in Germany, the US and the UK. One of the things that really surprised me was a finding that in the UK and the US, 50% of members of a car sharing service said that they had only used the service once a month or not at all. That is very different from the hype. Yeah, it's very different from the hype. And clearly you have to here differentiate between at least what used to be the media coverage about this and what is really the actual facts. And uh, this is not only true for the UK and for the US or to a lesser degree, but it's also true for Germany. And we have in the meantime also looked into different other countries. There is a lot of users, active members, that are barely using it, although they are members, as you were describing it, or that are not using it at all. Perhaps they have once used it or twice and then they have forgotten about it almost. So this is the harsh reality of it. And then there is, of course, a much smaller core of regular users. But with regard to these regular users, you also have to acknowledge a certain, let's say, inconvenient truth. Because these regular core members, so to say, that are really um, giving also the very high ratings on car sharing that regularly use it, they use it typically because of two elements. 
they don't use it because they want to be green and very sustainable, but they predominantly use it because they think it's cheap, comparably cheap form of mobility, which it basically is. And they are using it because they are expecting a very high level of convenience. And these two ingredients, if you combine them, they are the recipe for a very difficult economic business case from the supply side. Why is that? Because, first of all, yeah, they are using at the moment it's cheaper than comparable modes of transportation. So that means our pricing has to orient itself against competing modes of uh, transportation, which is public transport, which is taxis. So there's a ceiling on that side. We have to lure customers in by the uh, economic attractiveness of the offering. So the, the, this is one thing. The other one is the convenience, meaning we have to ensure that the cars are within walking distance. Otherwise, users will turn their backs on car sharing, meaning we have to actually employ fleets that are quite densely distributed over our areas of operation. So on the one side, I cannot earn too much because there's a ceiling because I'm competing with other modes of transportation. And on the other side, my customers are expecting that in every corner, a car is standing. So if I put these two together, these are the recipe or the ingredients for a very challenging business case. And that's also what we are seeing. In order to make it work economically and in order to be able to offer car sharing in an economically feasible way, you have to offer it in densely populated urban areas. And that means typically north of 6,000 people a square kilometer. And these areas are actually rare to find, especially in, in Western markets. It might be different in Chinese cities or in Indian cities, but even in cities like Melbourne and Sydney, I can talk about cities like Berlin and Hamburg, there are very few areas actually that qualify to allow for such a densely populated area. Germany is a country with 83 million people living in there. Out of these 83 million people, 14 million people are living in the biggest cities. And out of these 14 million people living in the biggest cities, only roughly 5 million are really living in the densely populated areas that are required to offer car sharing in an economically feasible way. And that means actually from all the 83 million people in Germany, you can only offer car sharing if you want to make at least a little bit of money for 5% of the population. And that alone tells you already that even if car sharing would pick up tremendously and all people who are living in the inner city parts of the biggest cities in a country, you would only replace in the best possible way. That means all the people who are living in downtown Melbourne, downtown uh, Sydney, downtown Brisbane, they are all completely abandoning car ownership. They are all completely switching to car sharing. Then you would only replace 5% of the car ownership in total. And this simple calculation in itself already tells you that the high hopes and the hype that car sharing was hoping to live up to were actually from the beginning never realistic. And you found this in Berlin and Hamburg, as you said, that there's been no reduction in new car registration. What about the effect, though, on public transport? Have you got any data on how car sharing might affect the provision of public transport in the city? Yes, absolutely. Very good question, Anthony. And this is perhaps one of the sobering facts coming from the 
environmental perspective. What we have found, as you said, first of all, in cities where car sharing has been established already years ago and on a big scale where uh, multiple suppliers were offering it, Car2Go, DriveNow, a lot of others, we have not seen any effect on new car ownership, meaning new car sales is actually completely flat, A, and B, what we have observed, because yes, these offerings are being used by these core members, some of them are even regularly using them, but unfortunately, from an environmental perspective, they're using it at the expense of public transportation. So what we are clearly seeing is car sharing has not been promoting the switch from ownership to shared, but actually has been promoting the switch from using public transportation whenever it's more convenient to switch to, to car sharing offerings. And that, of course, was never the intention of any mayor of any city. Dr. Wolf Stoller from the consulting firm Carney. So there's still a lot to do to make car driving more sustainable in the future, and unjustified hype certainly isn't helping. But just because we're not quite there yet doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying. My thanks to our other guests today, Ashley Nunes, Shirley Meng and Nick Kilvert. My colleague and co-producer here at Future Tense is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.